have a sharper analysis that includes race. And so now, you know, in this time in SEIU, we are saying that we have to have a real critique about corporate power and what that has done to the unions, but what it has done to our democracy, right? What it has done to our economy, and that we can't have that conversation about corporate power devoid a real conversation about race, right? And that we um, are having a reckoning about race inside of our own house, because if we have no credibility to have it outside of our house, if we are not gonna you know, grapple with it inside of our house. And so I think that is one of the things that have really changed, right? That we have come to know and to understand, we gotta talk about race. We can't stop when it gets hard. We have to continue to push forward and we have to make the changes necessary to, to create the transformative change we wanna see internally and externally. Hey everybody, it's Stephen Pitts, host of um, Black Work Talk. I'm really glad to, to be with you today, as always. Um, it's the first of the year. It's the first show we have this year, and so I'm excited to, for that. And Bill, I'm glad you're here. You know, Bill, you're my co-host on this, this mini-series. How you doing, man? Happy New Year, Steve. I'm, I'm uh, good. I had some downtime at the end of the year, which I absolutely needed. Yeah, that sounds great, man. I'm glad you could do that. Um, in some ways, it's kind of a somber period, because you know, this is after the one year anniversary of, of the insurrection. And um, yeah, I, I just want to get your thoughts on that, man. What do you think about the anniversary, you think about the insurrection? Any thoughts? Well, first, I call it a coup attempt. Uh, you and I have had this discussion for a year. Um, I think that this was a coup attempt. There was a section of uh, the political class moving against another section. Uh, with the uh, objective of uh, overturning the Constitution. Um, uh, I think uh, it's really interesting. Before the program started, I saw that Ted Cruz apologized for describing the uh, coup attempt uh, as a terrorist attack. And he apologized because I think it was Hannity or one of these other characters that said that that was wrong. And he backed down. Uh, but it was a terrorist act. Um, and uh, when, I, when I think about it, I think uh, two main things. One is, had well, actually three things. One, had that been people of color uh, carrying out that kind of attack, there would have been a massacre that would have made Tiananmen look like a picnic. I mean, there would have been blood in the streets. Uh, so there's no question about that. Second thing I was thinking about after the um, uh, acquittal of Kyle, uh, what's his name, in Kenosha, um, was that if I, as a black man, had grabbed an M16 or an AK-47 and gone down to the Capitol to assist the Capitol Police in stopping the coup people, uh, there's no question but that I would have been killed or jailed. But certainly, had I killed anybody, I would not have been acquitted. Um, even if I had been on the side of the Capitol Police. The third thing I th was thinking about is that um, we have to keep in mind that this was one of many acts of terror by the political right. Uh, they have been emboldened, in part because of the kind of support that they're getting from the Republican Party, which has become the party for dictatorship. And relevant to today's discussion, I would say, Steve, that organized labor is entirely unprepared to deal with the far right, uh, that there's a level of denial at the upper levels of organized labor about the, the danger that is posed by right-wing terrorism, uh, congressional obstruction by the right, and the future possibilities of other coup attempts. A couple of thoughts in response to that, Bill, and I don't want to go too far on because our guests can shed a lot of light on, on how we build power to fight these things back. But I think one over how a lot of times when we look at things happening in other countries and what we call authoritarian or fascist or terrorist type stuff, the, the people who are the eight active people there become one-dimensional. 
And so we think they're the crazed people, right? And we don't see fully fleshed out human beings. Mm-hmm. What we saw on January 6th was fully fleshed out human beings. You know, people who were literally people's neighbors mm-hmm. doing things that they do, do overseas, by the way. And so one part of the disconnect is simply that. That's right. That we kind of have terrorists in a box, what it means. It's not a regular white American. Can't be by mm-hmm. definition, right? And so that's one thing I thought right. about. But also I think it's important is um, I think this assault on democracy has some parallels. And I went deep into it, by so I kind of just throw it out there for its consideration. Some parallels to the Confederacy and the Lost Cause. Because what's happening is the mm-hmm. idea of simply making legitimate what we would call illegitimate activities. And, and, and so you wouldn't know that the South lost the war. Okay, you would know that they disenfranchised black right. folks and therefore every politician in the, from the South is illegitimate from 1870, give mm-hmm. or take, to 1965. And we don't think about that at all, the legitimacy mm-hmm. of that. And same thing is trying to happen now, that they're, they're trying to get control of the election machinery. So all of a sudden, the so-called legitimate representatives will be legitimate once again. They'll go forward. Nothing happened. Um, and the last thing worries it to death, Bill, is that you know, we have a critique of this country's democracy that's imperfect. I think it's largely accurate, you know? Mm-hmm. But it means that if, if the current democracy is inadequate, then a lot of working folk had no stake in democracy as they know it. So it's very hard to fight for democracy when people don't think that should certainly any value. And, and how we bridge that gap between the important need to fight for democracy and the reality that for a lot of people it means nothing at all is a major challenge. Um, but I think one way to, ch- to, to make, bridge that gap is through strong organizations and strong unions. That's my pivot to our, our guest. Uh, I'm so happy April is here. April Verrett is our guest, our first guest, year 2022. And April is president of SEIU 2015. Um, she's head of local represents the numbers. I'll say 100,000 and keep going over that. 100,000 long-term care workers and nursing home, home workers. And um, statewide. I first met April, well, April maybe, what, 10 years ago? In Chicago, something like that. You're in Chicago, mm-hmm. and now you're here. You came to join me in California. So welcome to California. You've been there a long time, though. But I'm glad you're on the show. It. it <laughs> thank you so much, Stephen. Um, it's really great to be here with uh, both you and good, good afternoon, Bill. I know it's afternoon where you are. Morning here for Stephen and I. And I want you to give every bit of the four hundred thousand workers that 2015 represents their. Justice. I apologize for three hundred thousand. I turned turn invisible. I apologize for that. <laughs> But the important is you have, no you have a big, large, important local union, not just in California, but in the country. And so the idea of how we build power, both to advance the interests of, of workers and black workers in particular, um, what you're doing, what you have at your disposal is really important. So I want to talk a bit about all these things today in, in our show. And um, now I think you heard us talking about the, 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 the coup of the insurrection your reflections on what happened a year ago on June on January sixth? Yeah, I mean, I I really appreciated listening to both uh, you, Stephen, your reflection as well as Bill's. The one thing I would add is that I think it's important to remember, you know, people of color, black people in particular, get criticized that we see everything through, um, through a racial lens and frame. Well, we all do. Right. (laughs) Black folk just got the nerve to admit it. Um, But I don't think we can reflect on, have an analysis or bring forth solutions to what we saw happen on January 6th without talking about race, in particular, without talking about white supremacy, without talking about racism, without talking about Trumpism. Um, you know, white supremacy, Nash, white nationalism, Trumpism, first cousins, but all very different things. And I think we have to understand them and have an analysis of them if we're going to save our democracy. Um, and so I want us to make sure that we don't think about and talk about January 6th 
devoid of having a real race analysis, particularly um, at this time in our history about how white folk feel about being white <laughs> and about all of the rest of us. Um, and, and that this notion of a democracy, how we have not all participated in the democracy robustly, right? That we tend to be big D Democrats or big R Republicans, but how do we build muscle and really learn what it means to be a person who is actively participating as a small D Democrat in this democracy every single day? Not just every two years when we go to cast ballots during elections, but I think democracy calls on all of us to be active participants all the time. And we have taken our eye off the ball and we've given our democracy over to moneyed interest, to institutions, to political parties. And, and I hope that in that moving forward, all of us can be much more actively participating in our democracy as we both try to save it but also try to make it live up to the promise that has never been realized for so many of us in this country. So April, um, that's really important. And my thought is a question for you following up on that is what are you doing in 2015? The local, not the year six years ago, by the way, mm -hmm. the local, what are you doing local 2015 to have members be active, small deal participants? Yeah. They, uh, so one of the things we started, an initiative we started, and this was after the 2020 election, um, or excuse me, the 2018 election, 16, when Trump was elected, um, our members couldn't believe what happened. How did this happen? You know, how did this man get elected? And we figured out so many folks don't really know how the democracy works. And so we, we initiated democracy schools where we started bringing members together to do just some civic education, right? Learning about the different branches of government, learning about the intersections of them and how a bill gets passed. So starting at a place, well, let's like, let's all have a shared understanding of how this thing we call a democracy works. And then let's figure out what's our role in it, right? That, that it's again, not just enough to show up and vote on election day, it's not just enough to knock doors and get people to come out and vote on election day, but the real work in many ways starts after folks are sworn in in January. How are we holding them accountable to passing the policies that the constituents that sent them to you know, whatever um, house of government that they go to? How are we holding them accountable to passing policies that work for working people, right? That makes sense. And so we need to show up at hearings, right? Um, in city council meetings, show up at, at the state capitol and, and, and really be, again, active participants in how budget gets passed, right? Like this is our democracy. And so we're really encouraging and giving our members tools and resources to be active participants all the time. So what were some takeaways from, from, from those schools in terms of, of both kind of the consciousness of, of members and the practice of, of the members and, and the union? Yeah, I mean, I think it, it it helps, you know, when it comes time to, you know, build the mobilization and the, the field um, teams that we need for elections. Folks are more motivated um, to get out and to do the work and to make the phone calls and knock the doors because they have a better understanding and, um, and, and are really uh, wedded to and bought into um, elections in a different way. And, you know, we have seen even during the pandemic, um, much more activi activism and leadership um, on the part of our members as it relates to elections. And we have, you know, had some success at getting people more actively involved in policymaking and, and really being critical thinkers um, in, in how policy plays out in their lives. One last little kind of, I call it pulling the thread in the conversation before I want, want Bill to jump in on some stuff. Um, you and I know, and maybe a lot of our listeners know, that California is huge. And you have kind of a California that is kind of the bay where I am, the California where you are down in L.A. We also have a part of California that looks a lot like Trump country. And you represent people in all those regions. How did, it is Trump country, Stephen. Oh, okay. <laughs> Let's be real. Not, not, not just appears like it actually is, right? So how did they take to the democracy schools? 
Those folk. Well, they love them, right? Because we don't talk about democracy schools again as a um, Democrat or Republican thing. We talk about democracy schools as we are all in this together and we all have something to learn. But we do find that when you just give folks the information, right, and point to bills and policies that Democrats, right, support versus those that Republicans support, what Trump did during his tenure as president to dismantle many of the gains that home care workers and nursing home workers have made over the decades, the damage that he did, right, to the work, to our workforce, to our organization, whether they were a right-leaning voter or not, they could draw their own conclusions and it changed for many of them how they thought about Trump and how they voted. I thought that's great. That's great. Bill, you want to jump in a little bit, man? So um, a few months ago, I had a discussion with uh, several national union leaders who will go nameless. And oh, I was man. talking with them. Oh, no, I, I can't do it, uh, even though I want to. <laughs> Uh, and I asked them, uh, I was talking with them about leadership development. I had a particular proposal. They um, they basically said, with the exception of one person, well, we more or less do this. We, you know, we have either our own leadership development program or we have universities, et cetera. And so what you're raising is redundant. And I said, okay, I get that. But I said, but let me ask you a question. How many of your leadership development programs prepared your union for what they would have needed to, to have done had the January 6th coup succeeded? Crickets. Complete silence. And then I said, um, and furthermore, how many of those programs are preparing your leaders and members for what they should do going forward, given that the right wing is not disappearing and we should anticipate right wing terrorism, et cetera. Nothing. Uh, a couple of them tried to turn it into a joke. You know, make a joke about it. Uh, one person uh, spoke up favorably in terms of what I was saying, but the rest of them had nothing to say. Um, how do you think your local, how do you think SEIU is prepared or not prepared to deal with the reality of right-wing authoritarianism? Hmm. Well, I will say 2015, you know, is not perfect, nor is SEIU. We all have a lot of work to do um, on many fronts. But what I will say is that we, at the very least, ask the question. Right. We um, both nationally and here locally have the conversations about right wing authoritarianism. We have the conversations about white supremacy and Trumpism and white nationalism and what it means, both with members, you know, with staff, with leaders. Um, we are leaning into the problem and working with folks across the spectrum of our union. Um, I hate using terms like top down. Um, but across the spectrum of the union to, to figure out how we are not leaving our members behind in the conversation. I think far too many labor leaders are afraid of opening Pandora's box, right? And, it, and even having the conversation about racism, about white nationalism um, in, in places that we need to have it the most, right? We have, we go into places like, you know, Northern Michigan, right, where we represent prison guards and have, you know, bold, courageous conversations about the realities of what it's like to be a white prison guard who, you know, is 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 in a situation where most of the inmates don't look like them. Um, and, and so I, I'm proud that we push the envelope and that we have the conversation into leadership development. If any labor leader thinks that it is enough in 2022, to train people on how to do a grievance, to how to bargain a contract, even at best, right? How to move an organizing conversation. It's not enough. 
if we really want to develop leaders, right, member leaders, we have to give them tools to be critical thinkers, to draw conclusions of their own over a whole spectrum of issues. Um, our democracy, politics, our economy, how our industries work, right? The moment calls on us to be better and to develop what is our biggest resource, and that is our membership. Um, in, an, in an age where it is dwindling all across this country, if we are not activating and mobilizing and really investing in real leadership of members in our union to be critical thinkers and partners and helping us figure out the answers to the hard questions, shame on us. So let me ask you a follow-up and a very direct question, April, um, about this. So I uh, I hear what you're saying and I agree with it. Um, as you know, I used to work for SEIU mm -hmm. uh, and was an SEIU member for many years. Uh, when Andy Stern took over in 96, he moved SEIU away from the kind of education that you're describing, away from. Um, what happened that now your local, at least, is able to engage in that level of discussion? What changed? Um, well, I, I was not around in 96. <laughs> So I, um, I I can't pretend that I understand everything that, you know, went into the change. But I will say, you know, Andy took the union in a direction that was hyper focused on growth and on building political power that, you know, I don't know was wrong. Right. It was a direction. Um, and I want to. And I believe we are still in that direction, right, where we are focused on growing the movement, on building political power. But we have developed, I think, an analysis that is sharper than the analysis because the times have called for it, has called for it. Right. Um, when we see the, the private sector, you know, union density across the country, I don't even know what it is anymore. Like it's so small, mm -hmm. doesn't even make sense to count it. Um, and we kind of forget that in our California bubble, but you know the, the 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 segment of the labor force that is now unionized in the private sector is dismal, and so we have to have a sharper analysis that includes race. And so now, you know, in this time in SEIU, we are saying that we have to have a real critique about corporate power and what that has done to the unions, but what this has done to our democracy. Right, what it has done to our economy, and that we can't have that conversation about corporate power devoid a real conversation about race, right? Mm -hmm. And that we um, are having a reckoning about race inside of our own house, because if we have no credibility to have it outside of our house, if we are not going to, you know, grapple with it inside of our house. And so I think that is one of the things that have really changed. Right. That we have come to know and to understand we got to talk about race. We can't stop when it gets hard. We have to continue to push forward and we have to make the changes necessary to to create the transformative change we want to see internally and externally. Hmm. Thank you. Mm -hmm. Guys, I have some questions I want to ask you, April, but you and Bill have, have me think of other questions, by the way. So I'll, I'll maybe circle back to my previous question in a second. So you mentioned the importance of talking about race. I'm sorry, Stephen, just let me just say one more thing. And Bill, I hope that one day, because I know a little bit about your history in SEIU and would love to know more, but I do hope that one day we make you proud. I appreciate that, April. Um, SEIU was, for most of the time I was there, the most important uh, job experience I'd ever had. Mm -hmm. And it was uh, very emotional for me to leave SEIU. But it was going in a, a direction that I could not embrace. Mm -hmm. And one part of that was the destruction of what was recognized, and it wasn't just me speaking, uh, probably the best lay, uh, leadership development program in the union movement, uh, all in the name of growth. Mm -hmm. 
And, um, and my heart has been broken ever since. Um, I think that uh, what you're describing in terms of the work you're doing with your members does make me proud. It's not like you have to help. You have to make me proud. I am proud. That's exactly what the union movement needs to be doing. And frankly, I think too many union leaders are cowardly. You know, they, they really are not ready to deal with this reality. And they, you know, there was this thing that Stephen Hawking's late physicist uh, said that a two-dimensional creature would never be able to understand, let alone visualize, a three-dimensional creature. Right. I think in the union movement, we have one-dimensional creatures that can't envision a three-dimensional being and a three-dimensional movement. But I think you're speaking to the need for a three-dimensional, indeed a four-dimensional movement. Yeah. So, April, so I'm proud. So April, you made Bill proud now. Well, please raise your, please raise your, please raise your size a higher now, okay? You need a much greater goals in life than making Bill proud, okay? Um, I don't Pay think... attention to the man behind that curtain. <laughs> but seriously, um, um, this is clearly a very serious topic. So I'll, I'll bring it down from my little jokes here and there. What I wanted to follow up on was how do the discussions actually unfold? Mm-hmm. Um, not that they should unfold, but the, and that they are unfolding. But our listeners don't know how they're actually unfolding in the real world of of the stuff, okay. you know. And, and I want to throw out two different dimensions for you to respond or not to how you want it to do. One is simply those Trump folk. Okay. okay. How do you, as much as possible, the concrete conversations around those folk. Okay. But also we know that amongst non-white folks, we are all in the same boat. And so when the question of talking about anti-black racism, it means that you also have conversation amongst folk of color in the union movement too. And there'll be a different sort of discussion than would it be amongst white folks. Mm -hmm. So if you can kind of expand more on, nothing need to, but actually how you're doing it. Yeah, uh, in fits and starts, and and st and stumbling along, but again, not giving up. And the thing that I think folks should know about 2015, in particular, is that we are not a union that's mainly made up of black people, right? Our union looks a lot like California. Um, it's a lot of everybody, um, largely Latino, largely immigrant, predominantly women you know, most of them poor. And you come to any gathering that's you, that's a, a meeting of 2015, you're going to hear three, four, five, six, sometimes 10 different languages being spoken. And I bring that up in particular, because when you bring in language and different languages, these conversations are even harder, right? And so it is being aware that when I see the members at the Mandarin table, a buzz, I sometimes got to stop and say, hey, let's talk about what's going over here at the Mandarin table, right? And not leave behind, you know, the folks that are at the Armenian table. Um, and one specific thing that I, um, I think about often is it was last year when we were really beginning to see the hate and the violence against, you know, AAPI communities unfold across the country, you know, but right here at home um, in California. And, you know, we had been having these conversations about anti-Black racism, you know, and what does it mean? And our AAPI members was like, okay, now Miss April, what you gonna say about that now? Right? And I, you know, had to say to members like, look, and again, this is me talking through an, a, a translator, right? Through an interpreter to folks who speak Mandarin, who speak Cantonese, um, Vietnamese, uh, Korean. And, but what I wanted them to try to understand and not leaving behind, you know, our indigenous brothers and sisters, as well as our Latino sisters and brothers, was that when I talk about anti-Black racism, please don't hear me just talk about Black people, right? I am talking about all of us. But we got to understand 
the, the type of sickness that racism here in this country is comes from the original sins of stealing this land and enslaving Black folks. And that the violence and the fear that is now in the AAPI communities in this country is, is from that same original sin, right? And, and that is what we try to get folks to understand. And I need you to hold my pain, my oppression, as close to your heart as you hold your own pain and your own oppression. Because I promise you, I'm holding the pain and the oppression for our AAPI sisters and brothers in my heart, as well as our Latino sisters and brothers in my heart. And that we can no longer let um, play this oppression Olympics and be torn apart, but we got to learn empathy and compassion. Compassion is one of the values, one of the named values of 2015, right? But that we got to hold each other's pain and oppression as close to our hearts as we hold our own, not holding one above or below the other. And if we can learn how to feel together, it begins to help us move the ball forward. April, to what extent um, do your members, do, do you or other leaders engage your members in an historical look at racism? Mm -hmm. uh, because I have found that in the absence of a historical foundation, becomes very moralistic, mm -hmm. uh, but that the points that you are making about race and settler colonialism are um, unrecognized by many people, including other peoples of color. Uh, um, and even among we of African descent, uh, we frequently uh, ignore what happened to the indigenous, what happened to uh, Chicanos, Puerto Ricans, um, and what happened to Asians, you know, the actual Asian, particularly the pre-1965 Asian experience in the United States. So to what extent do you engage people in historical discussions? Yeah, we have done quite a bit of that um, with our executive board. Unfortunately, we haven't been able to do it as we have been meeting, you know, in virtual environments because we mm -hmm. worry that the conversations and the discussions don't land the same. But we were in very intentional um, at every executive board meeting of our union. We included conversation and space to talk about race. Um, and we started with a historical context um, because you're right. Like it was important that we start at that place and try to help um, our members, our member leaders have a, a equal footing, right? Let's all learn mm -hmm. the same things together. Some of it we may, some of us may already know, but like, let's make sure we all have the same information. Because again, we don't just wanna train robots, <laughs> right? Who are gonna go out and knock doors and make phone calls. We wanna create and empower critical thinkers. Indeed. Neja talking April, I, I, it reminded me of, of a kind of a thing I think a lot about in terms of what I call the, the moral imperative of the labor movement to do what you're doing. Mm -hmm. Because I think that because unions are probably one of the most integrated spaces in this country, that's the context for doing the good work. Mm -hmm. Because it, it, it minimizes the, the transactional nature of the work because I work with you every day mm -hmm. and I fight the boss every day. Mm -hmm. Now, let me talk to you about these other things. And it's easier with people I know about than people who I don't know at all. So I, I really hope that, um, one, one, I feel excited talking to you, April, so thanks for that. It made it a better day for me, by the way. Um, but I, I, I hope that there's a way to like, spread the word of what you're doing and, and not just spread the, the good news, the gospel, but actually <laughs> spread the, 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 the whole complexities of it. Mm -hmm. Because some people, outside of labor, don't know the good work you're doing, mm -hmm. and they have a very one-dimensional view of what labor's doing. I think some people inside of labor, um, you know the people who don't want to do it, by the way, the people who want to do it are scared about those things, and knowing that you can do it and come out alive is important to hear. 
And so I hope that y'all you, find a way to spread the word. Yeah. That'd be so beneficial for us, us. Yeah. And we're doing it here in 2015. I, and I know that it is starting to become more and more um, real in other places in the labor movement. Um, I'm proud of what we've built in terms of the SEIU Racial Justice Center, where you see the type of curriculum that we use in 2015 being used in places all over the country. Um, and I know that, you know, I encourage my, you know, my sisters and brothers in other parts of the labor movement to, to do the same. Um, I know here in Southern California, UFCW, right, is on a, a path and a journey, right, to think about race and, and talk to their members about race in a different way, um, as one example. You know, when, when you and I had a little prep call, I guess it was yesterday, um, before today, you mentioned, um, what's the phrase you used? You said that. We can't build a 21st century labor movement on a model that worked in the 20th century. Mm -hmm. and, and you said it's important to understand um, our new context. Mm -hmm. It's important. Can you talk a bit about both those things, um, the, the, the key elements of the context we need to understand, how this is different? Um, but equally important, as we stitch together the, the April model, to change the world, twenty um, first century. What are some of the elements of of, of of this new model? Oh goodness! You know, if I had a, a magic wand, um, and if I was, you know, in charge of things, you know, I would really push us as a movement to think about not just the workers that we represent, right? I think we spend way too much time just thinking about you know, the folks that we have under contract and not enough time thinking about workers in general, right? I would love to see the labor movement adopt um, a goal of eradicating poverty, right? How are we really beginning to see ourselves as speaking for the working class, for working people um, in this country? And um, I view it as, as my life's work to end poverty. And I want to get some other folks, you know, on that journey with me. And so I want to build a labor movement that has that as, as its purpose, um, that, and that we're building power to, to, to eradicate poverty. I think that we have to think about non-traditional workers in a different way. I'm proud to represent a union that, that the heart and soul is workers that, that didn't have collective bargaining rights, you know, 10, 20, 30, 40, 50 years ago that many people saw as not real workers at all, but is, has grown into one of the most powerful, I'm proud to say, you know, unions in this country. And so we got to think about non-traditional work, women's work, the work of women of color in different ways, and not just a labor movement that is built around jobs where people enter them when they're 18, you know, and work until they're 62 and collect their pension and go home and sit down and retire. That's not the economy that we have um, that, that in this age, it's not the nature of work. And so I think we need to think about things like portable benefits, right? That, that follows a worker throughout the trajectory of their life. Young people, millennials, you know, Gen Zers, they're not going to work the same job or even in the same field, right, throughout their lives. And so how do they find a home in the labor movement that speaks to the way they think about work? And so I think we need to reimagine what structures we need to have that, that, that encourage workers to be a part of our movement, the fights that we pick up and that we take, right? A worker, you know, if they're lucky, works eight hours a day, right? Far too many of them work part-time, you know, far too many of them, you know, work overtime. But like, how are we really real about what the nature of work is, how many jobs people work, how long they stay, you know, in that work, um, what type of benefits are important to them? Um, and finally, how are we not just building institutions, but how are we building power, right? How are we thinking, not just about a worker in a work site, but a worker across a sector, across an industry, and that we just aren't wed to, you know, again, the people that we represent, but that we're really working um, uh, to build power and affect change on scale. And always, always has a, a sharp analysis about race, 
<laughs> um, about our democracy. April, um, I, I found myself thinking about uh, the particular challenge, challenges that Black women leaders in the union movement face. Um, and, uh, and, and I'm wondering, both from your experience, but also from your observations about what are some of the most significant challenges, but also how are they overcome and what needs to be done? Um, you would think that as a black woman, I would have an answer, you know, rolling off my tongue. Um, you know, but I would say I often think about how am I making sure April isn't so unique, right? There is nothing particularly special about me, right? Mm -hmm. That would afford me the opportunities that I've had to, to be in relationship and to be given opportunity that led me, you know, on the path that my career and my journey in the labor mood has movement has taken. But people will think I'm some unicorn, right? <laughs> but I think there's a lot of people who can be April, right? If they are afforded to be in relationship with people who can both sponsor them and mentor them, um, as well as given the opportunity to show what they can do and to succeed. And so I think that that's the first thing we got to understand. Invest in mm -hmm. people, get in relationship, Bless, invest in black women, get in relationship with them, sponsor them, mentor them, give them opportunity. And um, I think the biggest obstacle that I felt I've had was just not being seen, right? Just not being heard, being um, put in situations where they needed to tick off a box to say that there was a black woman at the table, but that I wasn't really there because somebody thought that I had something to offer. And so, and so when that's happened, how have you responded? <laughs> I used my voice, <laughs> right? I didn't mm -hmm. just sit idly by and be that token, but I said what I had to say, um, no matter how scary, right? That, that was for me. Um, you know, I was there, I was going to take up space and I was going to make sure my voice was heard. Mm -hmm. Thank you. Mm -hmm. You know, as you're talking, April, I, I was thinking about, you know, we're having these four mini series for the podcast. Mm -hmm. you know, the first one's on black labor, but the third third mini series on black feminism. Mm -hmm. and, and what I'm it's, a, it's an area I really don't know a lot about, so I'm going to be very quiet. Hard to believe, by the way. Um, but but a thought and question I have, you know, there's a critique of some of the feminism come out of the '60s, and the way folk critiqued it was that it was white and middle class. And oftentimes those two phrases were used interchangeably as if white meant middle class and not that they can be white and not working class, not middle class. And so the idea was how do you get a, a feminist not rooted in, in, in middle class white folks, white women? Mm -hmm. I wonder how you didn't get the answer to putting out there fits to put it out there basically. I wonder how you apply that class critique of feminism back in the day to black feminism today. In, in, in other words, um, as you know, there are black women in your, in your union, mm -hmm. local 2015, who have clear specific interests. And it's important, I think, for us to recognize it and, and address them and incorporate their needs and, and the pathway to solve those needs into like a, 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 a direction that deals with black women's issues in lack of a term, a feminist thing. So the idea of having kind of like a black working class lens on feminism to me be fascinating to, to unfold. So mm -hmm. um, respond or not, it's simply more of a thought than the actual question. Yeah, I hope I don't get myself or you all, you know, into trouble. But the I'll blame you not. Wait, I will blame you. Don't worry about it. I, I, I can face it really quickly. Okay, it's on you. Okay. But I have struggled with feminism and have not always and, you know, refer to or very rarely do I refer to myself as a feminist. And it is because for me growing up, feminist was feminism was a white woman's thing. Right. I have always been black um, first. Right. And that is just my orientation to my identity. And um, 
And so I have often saw feminism um, not embrace race fully, right? And and that was kind of a non-starter for me. But I am clear um, as I have gotten older that women, in particular Black women, um, have a role to play in our movements, right, in our society, because I have seen Black women stand in the gap for everybody. Black women, Black men, <laughs> white women, white men, Latin, our brown sisters and brothers, our API sisters and brothers, right? We have a way of speaking and holding and fighting for the whole that I don't see many other um, demographics and, and folk pick up and share. Um, and we are often those who are left behind and get the least. And so I definitely see myself as someone who puts forth and pushes on leadership opportunities and on making space for Black women to, to have real power um, and to build real power. And because we do that and we bring everybody else along with us. Well, people in the audience having problems with what she said, her number is 555. <laughs> One, two, three, four, five, six, seven. Okay. Repeat. It's five, 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 one, two, three, four, five, six, seven. Um, but seriously, th th that was fine. Not, from my viewpoint, not all controversial. Um, I want to kind of shift gears a bit as we kind of begin to wind down, kind of land the ship, I call it. Um, how do you define black freedom? Um, I have a sense enough to not try to define it for anybody but myself. Because as you someone said earlier uh, in this conversation, we don't all think the same. But when I have personally felt for my freest is when I have had the opportunity to make choices for myself. Um, and so I want to build a world where freedom um, feels like it felt for me when I could choose my own path. Right. Devoid of people choosing for me, limiting what my opportunities and options were, but that any and everything in the world is available to me, um, available to us, um, available to black folk to enjoy, to find joy in abundance. Um, and so I think that's what freedom looks like. OK, that's cool. That's cool. Um, what is reading? What books or magazines or blogs are you reading right now? <laughs> so my reading for pleasure is is just that. It is pure pleasure. Uh, okay. <laughs> and so I have been reading um, a series from Tomi Adeyemi, and it's The Legacy of Orisha. And it is actually um, a, a couple of books that were written for young adults, but I find them, you know, really, really good, kind of in the Harry Potter-esque realm. And there's a little bit of magic. There's some romance. There's also a bit of social commentary if you want to find it there. But that's, that's what good. I'm reading for pleasure. And then just the last couple of days, I've been doing a lot of Googling and reading articles online about this, about pandemic versus endemic. Because I, I want to understand better the moment that we are in as it relates to COVID. So we got to circle back and get your thoughts on that next 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 time. Mm -hmm. We have a April part two on that one, okay? Um, how about music? Uh, to me, music is part of our, our soul. Mm -hmm. And it gets us through the tough times and it kind of carries on the good times. So what music are you listening? What music drives you? Um, so Donny Hathaway, Stevie Wonder, Aretha Franklin gets heavy rotation in my life on a regular. When I want to feel good and I get a little homesick, Chicago house music, uh, disco, as we call it, um, gets gets a lot of, of airtime in my house. And then for the last month or so, um, I'm listening to lots of Adele. So I'm building a soundtrack for our liberation. Mm -hmm. I can't put the entire Donny Hathaway catalog <laughs> on the soundtrack. So you mentioned many artists. Any one song in particular from Donny and Stevie oh. and Aretha and our house music and Adele you want to throw out there? Oh, my goodness. Uh, my favorite Aretha song is Daydreaming. Okay. Yeah. Sounds good. And of course, Donnie Hathaway, Someday We'll All Be Free. Hey, 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 hey. This has been good, April. Um, thanks for coming on. Thanks for having it's, me. It, you know, it's, it's, as I tell, tell almost all my guests, I know most of you before this, 
but we really sit down and talk. We kind of Zoom, Zoom mm-hmm. meeting that kind of thing. So the idea we can sit down and just chop it up a little bit is, is cool. As you say, you're from Chicago, and that's the common theme for a lot of my guests, that home will always be home. Home will always be some, home. By the way, you're a Southside West Side girl. Which are you? Oh, I'm a Southside girl. Good. We keep on talking. Then. You, 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 you're legit then, okay? Get myself in trouble. <laughs> anyway, um, it's so good for you to come on. I really believe that January 6, 2021 was a pivot point in U.S. history. Maybe pivot point is the wrong word. Maybe more of a marker. A marker where it became crystal clear to all people who value small-d democracy that a movement existed, one headed by the Republican Party, that posed a serious threat to our country. The last time this nation faced such an internal threat was with the attack on the post-Civil War Reconstruction. The country failed that test, and as a result, the political possibilities since then have been sharply constrained by the power of illegitimate white Southern politicians elected to office by denying black people the vote. Talking with April brings me hope. This hope is not a Pollyannish hope of a dream that if we can mobilize our side, we can stave off this threat at the ballot box in 2022 and 2024. If we do have the electoral successes between now and 2024, the racist authoritarian threat will still be huge. The hope I have stems from the knowledge that people like April and organizations like SAU Local 2015 are doing the unglamorous grunt work of building democracy from the ground up. It was heartening to hear April talk of their democracy schools, which will be the core elements of our needed democracy movement. In much the same way, the Southern Christian Leadership Conference's citizenship schools were the core elements of the Southern-based civil rights movement in the 50s and 60s. This democracy movement can only be stitched together by these difficult efforts at the grassroots that combine having difficult conversations with organizing to fight the elites in order to improve the daily lives of working people. Thanks for joining me this week on Black Work Talk. Black Work Talk comes to you via Organizing Upgrade, an online space created to strengthen social movements. If you appreciate Black Work Talk, check out Organizing Upgrade's weekly live show, Frontline Dispatches. The show spotlights organizers and activists at ground zero of fights for racial and economic justice. Like Black Work Talk, it gives the mic to people with rules of insight you might not hear elsewhere. You can catch it on Wednesdays at 7 p.m. Eastern, 6 p.m. Central, and 4 p.m. Pacific, or anytime on Organizing Upgrade's Facebook page. I hope this podcast can grow to become part of the network of our movement for change. We need your help as you build the Black Work Talk community. Please subscribe to the podcast wherever you find your podcast, and go to Patreon to become a sustainer. And beyond the financial support, I would love to hear from you. What do you think about the show? Any suggestions for future guests or future topics to explore? Please let me know. Reach out to me at steven at blackworktalk.com and I promise to get back to you. Till next time, stay safe and be well.